Good morning. You guys great? Good? What is it? Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Who knows who said that? Just for fun. Benjamin Franklin, Marina Wilson, thank you. She has all the answers about everything. So, so good morning. I wonder if we could uh, open your Bible, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm doing a second week on marriage and the gospel, not just marriage, how marriage and the gospel are together. And I also have a personal testimony to share with you. My personal testimony is that I preached on marriage last week and my wife and I still had a good week. I was, that was great, yeah. I was like, we're doing okay, Lord, it is good. Ruth Graham said, a successful marriage is made up of two great forgivers. It's absolutely true, and as I said last week, I said again, I am not an expert in marriage. I don't stand before you as someone who's some guru on marriage or some expert or some guy who doesn't fight with his wife, who isn't a jerk at times. We have issues. We go back and forth. We are trying to raise children in this crazy world, and, but we face it with you. But today what I want to share with you is not just something that I've looked at over the years and years and years. It is, for me, the background of, of marriage standard. And I started last week, and I was going to try to do this in one week. I see now how that would have been impossible. But marriage and the gospel. And so I'm just trying to encourage and remind us, because we need it, yeah? It's also that marriage is under threat right now. It really is. Marriage, as God sees it, is under threat. And I trust that today... Today we're going to go a little bit deeper, do a little bit of a study. You guys good for a study? Last week was more from the heart. This is going to be a bit of a study, but it'll make much more sense in the end. So let's do a little recap really quick. Let's go to Genesis. I know you're in Ephesians 5. Genesis 2 will come up behind me and talk about God's original intention. It says here, let's read verse 18, Genesis 2. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper shared this with you last week, that word helper or help meet, that word is used 18 times in the Bible in reference to relationships, and two times for a wife, how a wife is a helper or help meet to a husband, but the other 16 times it's used how God helps man. And I say that to the ladies, and I give you that, please don't use it in an argument, but the wives, wives help us like God helps us. And uh, there is something about that that we haven't quite seen, I think, in our modern society, is that God made something that is actually magnificent. But we'll look at that in a moment. And the Lord God said, it is not that good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And so Adam gave names to all cattle and all the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord had taken from um, man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. In the Hebrew, it's isha out of ish woman out of man, because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And so every single sentence there we kind of touched on last week. And I wish we could go over it again. I was surprised at the response, to be honest with you. Many people calling or texting. And it just was helpful. And it's just that those sentences are actually profound. And so we touched on a little bit last week. I'm just going to read you some points. Weddings, or should I say a marriage covenant, plays a major, if not the major role throughout all of Scripture. Because the Scriptures are bookended by marriage. There's a wedding in the beginning that God officiates, and there's a wedding at the end that God officiates. And in actual fact, part of the plan of redemption is because it was Adam and Eve, a king and queen of the earth who God made before the fall, and he gave them authority together. Hello? Did we hear that? Together. And when they sinned and they fell and death came into the world through sin, it was a covenanted pair of people that did that. So part of redemption's plan, it has to be through marriage that that plan is redeemed fully. And I'm not meaning human marriage. That is why the bride is called, the church is called the bride of Christ. Because it was a couple covenanted, made by God, perfect before the fall, made in His image, given His authority. And when that changed literally the world, the law of entropy, creation, people, everything, the Lord said, we will do it as a marriage again. But this time we will do it right. So marriage is kind of a big deal. Um, and also we see that uh, in mankind's first union, some undeniable facts. I read this last week. I'm going to read it again. That God himself was directly and personally involved. And he desires to be directly and personally involved in every single one of your marriages. He does. Uh, that it was God's decision, not Adam's, that Adam should have a mate. It was God who said, it is not good that he should be alone. Now, some people are called to be celibate, but it was God's marriage, a covenant of marriage was God's idea, not man's idea. And it was God, very important, who formed Adam, and it was God who formed Eve. And when we think we are responsible to form and shape our wives, or to form and shape our husbands, good luck. It just doesn't seem to go so well. When we try to shame them and form them into what we think they should be, even with good intentions, and I just want them to be the best that they can, good intentions. It is God who forms man. It is God who forms woman. And when it comes to a marriage partnership, it is still the Lord. Let the Lord form your spouse. Please hear me. Let him do it. And as I said last week, it was God who brought Eve to Adam. So both of them, the first face they saw, the first voice they heard, the first experience of love they had, the first emotions they felt, the first everything was from the Lord, not from each other. And there are things that many look to, and I do this all the time, we, you know, we're all human. When we look to our spouse for things that we can only get from the Lord, it is, in a sense, the beginning of the end of that fight or that season. There are things that I cannot get from her, as amazing as I think she's incredible. I brag to people all the time. I do. 
But as amazing as she is, there are things I cannot get from her. And when I look to her for things that only come from him, it will begin to dismantle things and dismantle and put pressure and expectations. Does this make sense? So, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And this has to do with marriage and the fall. I said it last week. We lost many things in the fall. But when it comes to relationships, specifically the Lord's way of thinking, that's why repentance changes the way you think. And when we are saved, even as a believer, the Bible says to renew your mind. So we lost his way of thinking. We also lost his way of loving. The love of God, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us before we even knew there was God. He loved us. True love, God love, God type of love has nothing to do even with your response, has nothing to do with how you, it's just, it is. It's unconditional. We talk about, oh, I love my children unconditionally, I love my wife unconditionally. It's, the, it's a good heart, and we're going to speak about that today. But true unconditional love means that there is no condition attached. And that is what I call the God type of love. And we need His way of loving, and we need God's way of thinking in order to help sustain marriage. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. We're not. We're going to mess up. But it's when we come back to that, because marriage was made by the Lord before the fall. And in the curse, when God pronounced the curse on Adam and Eve, and in a sense humanity, even though the plan of redemption was literally a part of that, he said, your seed will crush uh, uh, your seed will crush, her seed will crush your head, talking about the Messiah. If you look at that in Genesis 2 and 3, you'll see that pretty much everything that the Lord speaks to Adam and speaks to Eve changed their relationship, their partnership, and the way they saw each other. It was the fruit. It says that, this is not in the notes, help me Jesus. It says that the fruit Eve took of the fruit. She saw it was desirable to make one wise, and she took and ate of its fruit. Interesting, in the curse, in a sense, that comes through sin, the pronouncement upon Eve has to do with the fruit of her purpose. Childbearing and rulership. Her purpose, her creation was relational. Adam and the animals, man and animals and birds and whatever, were made from the dust. Eve was made from something that is already alive. And the very purpose of her creation, the fruit of that relationship and multiply and union and children, those are the things that the Lord said, now this will be difficult. Man, before Eve was around, Adam was given a task. He was given an assignment. He was given a job to till the ground. And when the curse was pronounced, it was the fruit, in a sense, of his purpose to work, to protect, to provide. The Lord said, these things will change for you because they ate the fruit of something they should have never done. Does this make sense? That's not where we're going today, but that was for free. So, go to Ephesians 5. I'm going to speak to husbands today, mostly. Obviously, it's to everyone. But I want to, we're going to read this text, and we're going to leave it and come back to it, and leave it and come back to it, and leave it and come back to it. This text to me personally, not that I'm here to 
give you my personal opinion. To the best of my ability, I'm going to give you what I see in the Word of the Lord. But this text has something that I keep coming back to over the years. Because we can go to marriage courses, they're good. We can go to marriage seminars, I think they're very good, they're very helpful. But if someone can convince us of good tools and good strategies and good methods, that's good. But at the end of the day, when the rubber hits the road, when mm, hits the fan, as they say, I need to know what is here. Because that is what the Lord will empower. So, that's why we're speaking about marriage and the gospel. So, we can do a little bit of a teaching. Ephesians 5, verse 15. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. That's great. Now we can go home. Just do that. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine which leads or in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another. Let me stop there. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with alcohol. Be filled with the Spirit. And then it says, one another. The Holy Spirit is the one who assists with all types of relationships. All types. Colleagues, children, parenting, peers, school, work, employer, employee, the Holy Spirit. And it is as we partner with the Holy Spirit and what that means and what that looks like, doesn't mean you have to be Pentecostal or Baptist or whatever, you, whatever. It's not that. It's a personal relationship with the Lord. As He ministers to your heart, it will change the way you deal with people. It says here, do not be drunk with wine, but in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, has this word, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That word submitting, as I said last week, hapotasso, to arrange oneself underneath, to put in divine order. Then it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. The word very important there, own. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the say, I know we did this last week, but we do it, do it again. He is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Remember that. The husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject, that word is actually the same, hypotasso means submission, not subject as a slave or a subject. Just as the church is in submission to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. Now, last week I said this, and I could feel it just shook some people. Look at that verse. Read it in the NIV. It says, Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. So the question actually is not submission, because biblical submission and earthly submission are two very different things. The question is actually, how does the church submit itself to the Lord? And I said this last week, freely 
and by personal revelation. <laughs> salvation cannot be salvation if it's forced. Cannot be. If it's forced and you don't have a choice and free will is violated, by definition, it is no longer salvation. Hello. We get a choice. The Holy Spirit moves on our heart and we have a choice. We are revealed to us God, our need for God. And by salvation, by His grace, we are saved. We can earn it, but it's revealed to us and we make a choice and we make it freely. This is actually how the church submits or comes underneath Christ. And then in the relationship, as you grow with the Lord, that develops and changes. Yeah? And I'm just going to step all over toes today. Just put your feet out and just jump on them because it's just easier. I've heard so much teaching in the church. I grew up in the church. But I've heard so much teaching in the church, all different places. And the emphasis always seems to be on man's headship when it comes to marriage. The emphasis always seems to be on who's in charge, who's in authority. And, you know, the wife must submit and the husbands are, like, in charge. But please hear me when I say, the view of heaven's authority, how authority works, and how earth sees it are two very, very different things. And we're going to do that. So, let me go slow here. There is no place I can find in Scripture that says that women... Can you feel how tense it is in the room? They're like, what's he going to say next? What's he going to say next? It's kind of like, you know, I can just wait. No, sorry. There's no place I can find that says woman, by the definition of a female, is under a man. Except when it comes to a covenant of marriage or in the church. Because that is a covenant too. There is no place I can find where the Scripture says that women are under men or less than men. Because by created order, <laughs> Katie Vegas is clapping for me. <laughs> by created order, we are both made in the image of God. So every Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, but every Scripture that I see that talks about <clears throat> submission or headship is in the context of a covenant. A marriage covenant or the covenant of God with His people in the terms of the church, because that is Christ and the bride. There is no scripture outside of that that just says in general, women and men are different or not equal. Actually, it says we are. Are we okay? I ask again, are we okay? If you disagree, that's okay, but show me in the Bible. Why is it like that? Because in both of these places, as I said, there is a covenant involved. And when there is a covenant involved, God is involved in that covenant. And because God is involved in that covenant, it will be touched by, it will have an authority to it. Because all authority comes from God. So, because... 
all submission and headship is not just male and female, it's in the context of a covenant. Because in that covenant, whether it's the church, God's people, or whether it's marriage, authority is involved. We have to understand how important authority is. So, the authority and submission issues in those covenants have nothing to do with how earth sees authority. And I will show you. Go to Luke chapter 22, please. This is said in a shame and honor society. I don't think we can imagine how radical this was for them. In a shame and honor society, status is everything. Jesus said, there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. This is why I love the disciples. They're just like us. I'm better than you. Well, I'm better than you. Well, I'm more gifted than you. Well, I'm whatever. Silly, right? Like children. But it happens all the time in today's world. There was a dispute among them as to which should be considered the greatest. And Jesus, and he said to them, the kings, the word basilius, meaning king, actually king, not just ruler, king of a kingdom. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship. That word lordship is dominion. So they're exercising lordship because they have the right to do it. Okay? The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority, different word, exousia, actually authority. So they're using the authority, their dominion, to practically exercise authority over people. Makes sense? The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. You know what that means? It means they use the position of authority to benefit themselves. It is the benefit that they receive and all the status and the wealth and the recognition they receive because they're in authority and with that lens, they express authority over people. Do you see that? What does it say next? But not so among you. Then he says, on the contrary. Huh, so heaven's type view of authority is different. He says, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. <clears throat> Said in a shame and honor society, the younger did not even get what the older got. Everything was structured. He says, he who is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs, you know what's interesting? That word govern is not the same word as lordship and not the same word as exercise authority that he just mentioned. That word govern is actually where we get the word lead. He says, you're not going to govern as they govern, by forcing and exercising authority over them, which provides you with benefit. You're going to lead them. And the word means to go before. The governing style of heaven is different. He says, where are we? I get excited. He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. Then he says, now he's sitting at a table being served. And he says, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? He's addressing the culture. And, it's a, and he says, is it not he who sits at the table? And they go like, well, obviously. But he's, then he says, but I am among you as one who serves. In other words, maybe you're wrong. <laughs> you think authority is I'm sitting at the table being served. Heaven's expression of authority is different. I have all authority. 
And I am here to serve you. Heaven's view of authority versus earth's view. Christ considered authority or headship as those who are given responsibility to remove, to take out of the way, to stop anything that blocks or hinders or gets in the way of those they have authority over. Christ considered authority, responsibility, to remove things out of the way, to go before, to change, to stop that which blocks anyone that you have authority over. It is the purpose for why you are given authority to do that, so that they can walk into the fulfillment of their destiny and flourish in their calling and they're just whatever God has called them to, the purpose of their life, that they can walk into that without every block and hinder and hit fight after fight after fight. And the Lord said, my view of authority is that the reason you are given authority is to take care of those issues. Not to just sit on a, I'm in charge. He said, because I have all authority and I'm here to serve you. And you don't even know what I'm doing, in a sense, he says. But I'm here. It is essential. It is essential to understand, especially in the church, friends, that being under authority does not mean inferior. It is absolutely essential. Jesus said he is under the authority of his Father, yet the Scripture says they are equal. Oh, boy. It's interesting up here. There's a great quote in that movie, Braveheart. It's now an old movie. I love that movie. We had it on VHS. Remember VHS? <laughs> Would you rewind it with, you know, rewind? It was great. And he said, it's a famous quote. Many preachers, I'm sure, used it a lot in those days, but I was a kid, so I couldn't. So He says this to these Scottish nobles who are... All they see is benefactor, titles and lands and status and wealth. And he says, you think the people of this country exist to provide you with position. But I think your position exists to provide them with freedom. And I go to make sure that they have it. He actually had a kingdom understanding of authority. Authority is given so that those you are in authority over don't have to fight. They can walk free. So, coming back to Ephesians 5, in marriage. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also, so also wives submit to their own husbands and everything. <laughs> if you look at that, the question is, how does the church submit to Christ freely and by personal revelation? But I don't think there would be a husband in here if, because we are part of the church, men, yeah? We are part of the church. So in, as a Christian, I'm part of the bride. I've always said if I have to wear a wedding dress, you can wear army boots, ladies, because we're also part of the army. But as a Christian, I'm the bride of Christ. I am part of the bride. And therefore, I'm part of the church. And so when I look at how I submit to the Lord, I wouldn't actually want my wife to repeat that to me says, wives, submit to your 
husbands as, as Christ, as the church does to Christ. Because I know my heart. I know my issues. I know how gracious the Lord is with me. I know how patient He is with me. I know how many times I've gone in the face of something I knew I shouldn't. Yeah? And if my wife, in a sense, treated me or responded to me sometimes the way I do to the Lord, she actually does it better than I do it to the Lord by far. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because the way a man submits to the Lord is actually an example to the family of what submission looks like. That's what that verse is saying. doesn't make them perfect, but they are an example. Okay, let's move on. That went down like a lead balloon. So, let's continue in Ephesians 5. How about that? Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And gave himself, meaning gave himself up to the authorities, and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself... A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So, I'm going to skip over that part. But let's go to Romans chapter 7. I want to give us a picture here. We're going to, in a sense, leave marriage, but we'll come back to it. Because we need to understand, this is where a little bit of study comes in. You guys alive? A little bit of study comes in because it makes something very clear. In the Old Testament, there was a brazen altar which represents the cross where they would do the sacrifices, but they had to do them every year because it was the blood of bull and goats cannot save. So, but after this big brazen altar or bronze altar, they would want to go into the tabernacle. Now they had the blood, right? They have the blood. They can go in and sprinkle the blood and do everything and be right before God. So they're like, yeah, we've got the blood. But on the way in, they would have to wash. They'd have to wash all the dirt and the dust, and they would have to wash in something called the bronze laver. And that didn't have anything to do with atonement, but yet they would have to do it. And that bronze laver was made out of mirrors, actually provided by the woman. And it was made out of mirrors, and as they would wash, the, the, the prophetic context is straight away after the cross, you need to look in the mirror. James 1 says, this is the mirror. Hello. But they would, in a sense, look in the mirror after you've come to the cross. The first thing you, God wants you to see is who you your new identity. You've been made new. You've been changed. You have authority. You're a son. You're a daughter. And you start to look in the mirror, and it reflects to you who you actually are. Okay? And that is, I believe, what Ephesians 5 is talking about here. That the way we are to love our wives, in a sense, is no matter what they're doing, or even when they come at us or when something happens, we reflect, actually, how Christ sees them. I know it's not easy, but here in Romans 7, look at this. Scriptures to husbands. Okay? Scripture presents that, in a sense, we have two husbands. Not, not polygamy. Please understand. You'll, you'll understand in a second. Paul here, Romans 7, verse 1, Paul uses an example from the law of Moses. You guys ready for this? Really? Okay. Just checking. Paul uses an example from the law of Moses to explain our union with Christ. Listen to this. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, in other words, he's speaking, he's saying for those who understand the old Hebrew law, 
that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who, was, who, who has a husband is bound by the law, Jewish law, to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But, and he's just quoting the law in a sense. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no, no longer an adulteress, though she has married another man, because the husband died, right? Therefore, he says, now he's not actually in a sense talking about that. He's referencing something from the law, and he says, therefore, because the context of this, how many of you know the context of Romans 6, 7 is Romans 6? doesn't take a genius. And he's talking about sin versus grace. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. So he's not talking about physical marriage yet. He's using an example to say when you were born, you were actually married to the law. But when you, in a sense, become saved... Legally, that marriage is nullified, and now you have a new husband, Christ, as the church, as the body of Christ. And he's using this, that old story, to explain something. So, read again. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So he's not talking about leaving one earthly husband to another earthly husband. You see that? It's talking about the law versus Jesus. And he says, you were married to another, now um, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So, there are two husbands in the Bible, in a sense. There's the law, and there is Jesus Christ. And if you take the law as your husband, what kind of husband is the law to you? Well, let's look. By the way, almost every one of these are scriptures. I just put them in modern vernacular. This, this sucks, okay? The law as a husband is this. The husband is chosen for you. Mm, that sounds exciting because you're born to it. The husband is designed to make us aware that there is something wrong with us. Bible says through the law is knowledge of sin. The law was pointing to a problem. Couldn't fix it. It says there's a problem with the world. That's, you were married to that. So you imagine being married to him. He's, he's designed to tell you, you're wrong. He, as the law, points out faults. He is also never wrong in what he says. That's not fun. Never wrong. Because he's the law. He himself never makes a mistake. Never. He's perfect. People are like, I want a perfect... No, you don't. Only Jesus. He himself never makes a mistake, not once. But you are never allowed to divorce him because it's against the law. And he never dies because God made him. <clears throat> and after pointing out your faults and being correct, he will never lift a finger to help you. He will just remind you. Wrong. Wrong. He will not and cannot empower you to overcome them. Instead, he makes it far more difficult as the way he points them out causes you to try harder. He doesn't ever remove the demand of perfection. He never lets up. 
day after day after day after day after day. That is what it's like to be married to the law. Now, little quick more theology. The Bible says when sin, when they sinned, death came through sin. Who's seen Lord of the Rings? Real quick. Okay. Good analogy. Death came through sin. That's what the Bible says. And in Romans 5. Romans 6, it says sin is like a slave. It personifies sin. It's like a slave master. Okay? That's Romans 6. Now, so what happens is death entered, but death is actually over sin. It's like Death is like the system, Mordor, or whatever, I think it's called that, I don't know, Lord of the Rings. Death is like the system, and it has an employee, Sin. He's a slave master, big, ugly creature, he's, he's, you're a slave when you're born. And that slave master has in his hands two whips, one in each hand, one that God made and one that he made. The one that he has in this hand is the law. How do I say that? 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin. He stings you with, in a sense, a bit of himself, because the end of sin is death. And the strength of sin, of, of sin is the law. The enemy will use the law against you, because he knows it can only point to the problem, it can't change a heart. And we are born married to that. So the enemy stands there, sin, as a slave master, and he has a whip in this hand, and in this hand, he wields deceit or lies and accusation, the accuser of the brethren. And he stands like this. And this is what it's like to be married to the law. And he says, so imagine that's happening. Now, when you do what your slave master wants, when you sin, because he's always there telling you to do that, he's a slave master, unsafe person. You do what the slave master wants, and you do something like you shouldn't, and he whoops you with the law. Ah, you know better. You shouldn't do that. Hello? Who's heard these things? You should know better. Don't you re remember what he said? Don't you remember what your parents thought? And he whoops you with the absolute law of God. Whack! And you guilt, condemnation. Then, when you eventually do Maybe what your husband, the law, wants, you finally do something right. The sin master takes out the other whip and he says, you really think you can keep that up? You know who you are. You know what you did yesterday. And he whips you with accusation. And you go from guilt to striving, from guilt to striving, from guilt to striving. That is the description, sadly, of most Christians' life. Like this. You think you can keep it up? You're useless. You know you won't last. You know you won't be able. You know. <laughs> and they go back and forth. Whack, whack, whack. So Jesus says, I tell you what, Dad. I'll go. I'll go. And I will make it because they can't divorce the law. The Bible says the law is like a husband. So... Christ comes and says, Dad, Father, I'll take care of it. Because I am the one in authority, I will serve them with salvation. Heaven's picture of authority. I will become like them. I will step off my throne. 
I will humble myself and serve my wife because I have been given authority to do so. And then if they believe in me, which is up to them, if they put their faith in me, they will identify with my death and resurrection. Yeah, the Bible says that? Hello? And therefore, they are legally able to divorce the law. Because, not because the law died, the law never dies, because God made it. Because they've died in me, you are crucified with Christ. He says, and because they've died, I can nullify this marriage to the law legally, and they can become mine. Now, how is Christ a husband to us? Obviously, it begins at salvation. This husband is also perfect. <laughs> Notice that? He is also perfect, but he is not like the law at all. This husband is the king. This husband is also your advocate in the high court of heaven, so that when those whips come, he can silence them. He does not wield those whips over you. Instead, he gives you a righteousness you could never own, ever, freely. He reminds you of who you really are. Because the Bible says, he is also Isaiah 54, your husband is your maker. He knows you better than you know yourself. This husband loves you. He loves you. Actually, unconditionally. And then when we make a mistake, as we all do, we all idiots some days, and we do something... And the enemy comes, because he's still like, you know, in the shadows, and he starts this whooping business. The husband stands up and says, don't touch my bride. Have you ever seen someone in a panic situation where you have to grab their face and talk to them? That's like what the Lord does. He grabs your face and he says, look at me, don't be afraid. Look at me. He says, I love you. You are right with God. The debt is actually settled. You are at peace with God. And then he takes the mirror and he says, now let's look, not in condemnation, let's look who you are. Let's look what I've given you. Let's see how I've made you. I believe in you. I took care of this legally. I'm not angry with you. I love you. Now, you can throw that up. Everything I just said in that conversation is a scripture. Now come up behind me. Everything is a scripture. This is how Christ is a husband to you, to the church. That feeling of being loved in a way we could never deserve. Now, back to marriage. People are like, oh, that was nice. Back to marriage. I have to confess that I have at more times been like the husband of the law than the husband of the Lord to my wife. I haven't meant to. But because this was such a revelation to me years ago, even that, I just, you get distracted, and then all of a sudden I realize one day I'm being like the law to her. I'm trying to form her. I can't. And I go back to this text, and I say, Lord... 
I want to be a husband like you are. And only your spirit can empower that. So when the Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that's what it's talking about. There was a story, this is a true story, of a couple in my parents' church in South Africa. And she was married to a man who was absolutely just domineering. And he used to literally write lists to her of his expectations. Some wives are like, yeah, I wouldn't have lasted a day. But she just come from, from an abusive background. And she tried everything, she, and we know these people, she tried everything she could to live up to that. That's the law. Everything. And she just couldn't. They ended up getting divorced. She went through some wonderful, obviously, healing and so forth. And she ended up marrying another man. And this man, I can honestly say, he just loved her. He just loved her. In years, they've been married for years, and they were moving house. And this lady, in the back of her, you know when something gets stuck at the back of your drawer, like the back of the back, you know? She was, had to take it apart to move. They were moving house. And in her nightstand, she found an, an old list that her first husband had written for her. And she realized that she was fulfilling every one of them because this husband just loved her without trying. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blame. I love the next verse. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's the Bible's version of happy wife, happy life. Pretty much. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are the members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He takes it back to the beginning, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she loves her husband or respects her husband. I'll read you these two quotes. These are great quotes. Husbands, love your wives. When a person experiences unconditional love, it is the power within that love which in turn makes that person lovable. Say it again. When a person experiences unconditional love, it is the power within that love which in turn makes that person lovable, even when you love them before they're lovable. There's another quote. Respecting one, talking about anybody, before they may be respectable, may very well create the soil in which they grow into a worthy recipient. Respect will make a person respectable. Last verse. It says, Therefore, my brethren, since you have, verse 7, verse 4, Romans 7, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. 
So we will bear the right fruit. When? When will we bear the right fruit? When the husband of the law goes away and the husband of love draws near. So in your marriage, we dream of this marriage where it's just there's so much fruit and love and serving one another. It's like we dream of that in our mind. What brings about that fruit biblically? When the law goes away, when the demand, when that is pushed back and love draws near. That's how. And just like the cross, that starts with forgiveness and grace. Forgiveness and grace. Forgiveness and grace. A good marriage is made up of two great forgivers. It starts with forgiveness and grace. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes real quick. I know I spoke mostly to the husbands today, but in a sense, it affects both. I don't believe women don't want respect, you know, that, you know, women want love and husbands want respect. No, we both want love and respect. Hello? Yeah. I'll say this actually before we pray. Bible says, laughter is medicine and joy is strength. Laughter is medicine and joy is strength. Please have fun together. I'm not so good at that. I have told my wife multiple times, force me to have fun. <laughs> force it. She does. We're going out. I'm like, I don't want to go out. We're going out. And every time she makes me go, and I'm that was really actually quite nice. <laughs> you know, it's like, man, we should do that sometimes. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay home and pray, and I'm going to fix something or build something. She's like, no, no, let's go. Actually, we have friends. Oh, we do? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> Speak to those friends. Oh, okay. Then we come back. Man, that was actually, well, that was quite nice. <laughs> Laughter is medicine. Joy is strength. I will encourage you, though, don't mock or scorn what your spouse finds funny. For real. Don't mock or scorn what they find funny. If their sense of humor is different to yours, learn to appreciate it. It will really help. So, I wonder if we can close our eyes real quick. I'm going to ask you to do something which for some of you may be extremely difficult. Bible says, while we are still sinners, Christ loved us. While we were still sinners, Christ loved us. I'm going to ask you to just, don't focus on it too long because you'll get angry. You know the areas in your heart where you need to forgive your spouse. If you're single, where you need to forgive any type of relationship, past relationship. If you're children, where you need to forgive your parents. You know what they are. While we were still sinners, Christ loved us. Colossians 3 says, forgive as Christ forgave. That's quite a, quite, a, quite a thing to say. Because he forgave when we did not even know we were wrong. So I'm asking you, if you can find it in your heart, and let me tell you, you can't unless the Holy Spirit helps you. So start by asking the Holy Spirit to help you right now. He is near. He is in your heart. He is in your life already. So ask him, Holy Spirit, I'm going to need your help right in about a, in about a second.
And then ask the Lord to bring up the areas that you know you need to forgive your spouse or your parents or past relationships, even if they're still doing it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I would encourage you, say things in your heart. Lord, I forgive him for this. Lord, I forgive for that. If you are inclined to self-condemnation, forgive yourself first. (laughs) Forgive yourself. Because if you don't, it will color how you forgive others. So just take a moment and just forgive. Sometimes you have to do it over and over. Just forgive. Lord, I thank you for the truth that you are our husband and that you are our maker. Men, could we quickly stand? I know we're done. Just just a minute. I wonder if, if just the men, is that on? Is that on? I wonder, I don't think it does. All right. I wonder if just the men could just ask the Lord to empower your husbandry to look a little like his. It doesn't come natural, guys. It doesn't. And wives need to know that. You can't hold what I've said today. You need to be like this because there's another whole side. I encourage you, just as men, just ask the Lord. Lord, I do this regularly. Because I can be an idiot often. Just ask him. Lord, I need you. I need you to empower me and show me. I can't start everything at once. Help me to love. There we go. I woke up. Help me to love my wife as you love the church. I can't do it on my own. I've seen a picture today of what love looks like. It is what they long for. Just ask him. I know we're eight minutes over. We're almost done. Just ask him. Holy Spirit, I pray that you empower husbands. And I pray that in every home in this church, that authority is seen as heaven sees authority. In Jesus' name, amen.